actually, we get to sin, sing again first. Um, oh, yes, we do. You're leading, and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so please stand and turn in your hymnal to number 253. There is a fountain filled with blood.
seated. <laughs> and if you'll pick up the Bible that is in reach to you, we will hear Paul's words to the Colossians. And I don't know the page number in that Hebrew Bible. Bible. I should, sorry. But Colossians chapter 1. And today we will hear verses 21 through 23. Hear the word of God to his image bearers. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It's God's word by which he made the world and has caused his glory to shine in our hearts in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, please, Glorify your son in the preaching of your word. Please enrich us as he deserves. Make us like him. Work that we we understand your profound love in giving him to us. Please instruct us that we would treasure that we would delight, that with joy we would live in his life. Let us hear and understand. Cause your word to be spoken. Pray in your son, Father. Amen. So we come today, as we work through Colossians, to the climax of Paul's opening celebration. And and Paul begins his letters in a standard way with prayer. And this one, sort of like Ephesians, he starts praying and and he doesn't stop. He goes on. It's extraordinary. And it's not just an impulse on Paul's part because, as I've told you, he's writing to the Colossians with, with, with clear purpose. Um, he's intervening. He, they don't know him. They received the gospel and instruction from Epaphras, who was part of Paul's missionary company. But he writes to them, and he's doing this. This letter is aimed at them because, I think as I've said before, these Colossians are being harassed with a question. 
It's at their elbow. It's bothering them. It's pushing on them. Are you a good enough Christian? And you, you may have been nudged and pushed and bothered by that question. Am I a good enough Christian? In ways, it, it is... It's something that just sort of can come up in your thoughts. For the Colossians, though, it's not just that occasion, experience of, wait a second, I wonder about me. This issue, which I've articulated as that question, are you a good enough Christian? It's being pressed on them because of influences from outside. And as we move forward in the letter, Paul's going to address those influences, but there's false teaching. Uh, foreign and really um, uh, deceptive and corrupt religious influences there in Colossae. And, and we can, we'll talk about what do we mean. Um, it doesn't seem to be that there's someone in the church uh, who's risen up and in the guise of being a pastor is passing this stuff off. But, but it's, it's seeping in. It's being influential. And it's not just sort of any anti-Christian idea is very specifically Jewish. And what I mean is that the teaching that's being presented to them, it draws up on the glorious things in the Old Testament about God's temple and tabernacle and uh, how God made a way for people to be in his presence. And and employing that, drawing on the Old Testament scriptures, the question, are you a good enough Christian, carries weight. Oh, sure, we understand you Gentiles. You've heard the promises of God to his people Israel, and you know about his Messiah. And Jesus, he's sort of Messiah-ish, of course. But don't you understand that you can't just, um, you need to be good enough. God's serious. And the reason that question, are you a good enough Christian, the reason it grates at you and bites at you and, 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 and you, you can't, you have to shut up at times, is because it really, it really has an if to it. It really implies an if. Because well, we answer the question, are you a good enough Christian? Well, if you're a good enough Christian, then this will happen. Or if you're not a good enough Christian, then you need to do this. That question, are you a good enough Christian? It leads you to expect, well, if this, then what? And notice, when Paul gets to the climax, it really is, I, oh, I pray that I can give the, the, the glory to this expression. When he gets to the climax of his celebration, when he see, speaks specifically about the Colossians and what Jesus has done with them, he then says, if. And that if could scare you. I remember as a 20-year-old young man, this, this if and other ifs in the Bible just, gave me the willies. 
And Paul here, instead of answering the question, are you a good enough Christian? He sails in with the celebration of God's work in them. He has this confidence, this expectation, pondering what's happened in Colossae, causes him to turn his eyes to Jesus, to think about what Jesus is doing in the world. There's a, there's a demonstration that makes him marvel at the Lord Jesus. And when he thinks of the Lord Jesus' great and grand work, he, he stands up and his last final shout is, and you, and you, he is now reconciled. That's the, the, the great cry of celebration, the climax. And then he says, if. Now, we've got to see the glory of this and then see that this if. Oh, I didn't hear this when I was 20. This if is a reassurance. This if is a confidence. Which is not how we think of the word if. And, and I want to, I, I want you to recognize the anxiety that can come with the word if. Um, I, on occasion, waste time watching compilation videos on the internet. You know, 20 people doing stupid things with bulldozers. Videos. You know, 20 cats who met unexpected dogs. All sorts of things. So this last weekend, I saw this one. Tourists and wild animals. And every one of these little clips was an if. So the first one, there you are, it's a, you're watching this woman walk towards a bison. And the voiceover says, you will enjoy tremendously your vacation at Yellowstone National Park if you don't try to pet a bison. And in the video, you watch this woman just get trampled. <laughs> if. And then cuts to two people, two guys, of course, middle-aged men, crouch down in the bushes. You see their faces in the bushes, and you can hear something. What is that noise? And the one guy says, grizzly bears are amazing this close up. And the other guy says nothing. There's this pause. And the first guy says, Oh, don't worry, we're fine if he doesn't catch our scent. <laughs> Cut to the next one. Here's this lady. She's, she's, she's just soaking wet. She's, she's standing at the back of a, of a boat, a, a, a fishing craft. Not, not a little, a real boat. And she has this terrified look on her face, and she's looking in the water, and there's swarming sharks in the water. She's terrified. And the guy trying to reassure her says, don't worry, you're perfectly safe if you don't go back in the water. If. She's terrified, but it's true. She's safe if she doesn't go back in the water. That last one's a real reassurance. She was terrified. And that if, that if, gave her reason to realize that's dangerous and I'm safe. Now, I'll go on about that because you've got to get the reassurance here. Because there are people who want to say to you, directly to your face, insidiously, 
oh, I know you're a Christian, but are you a good enough Christian? You've been a Christian a long time. Are you, are you, are you, are you, are you up, to, up to speed? And Paul's climactic answer to why that question can just be ignored is this. He has reconciled you. He has reconciled you. And further than that, he has presented you before him. Now, I don't think that the way Paul speaks here is very familiar to you. Remember, for the Colossians, the sort of hard thinking they're doing and wondering about salvation, it's, it's in a conversation about the tabernacle and the temple and God's laws of holiness. And I'm not thinking that y'all have that in mind, in mind a lot. You're familiar. You've, you, you know something of the Old Testament scriptures, but we've got to pay attention to the details here to get the real flavor, to be able to, to taste it. We can't hurry through this. Um, we need to think about what does it mean to be reconciled, holy, blameless, above reproach. Because this is the climax. This is the astounding, simple, there. Fear not, marvel, delight at what Jesus has done with you. He has reconciled you. Now, think about reconciliation. We, we use that language in English. And I've got to help you first to set aside some associations because of our familiar use. Uh, we think of reconciled, the, the most common use of reconciled is to speak of a husband and wife who've been separated and they come back together. And we say, they're reconciled. They're reconciled. They're ready to live together again. Um, and what we think of there is a changing of attitudes and dispositions that restores a relationship. And we think of both parties changing, both parties coming to realize, no, I want to be reconciled. I, I want to return to relationship with this person. And that could easily make you think this. Jesus reconciled you. See? He changed me. I used to be obnoxious and contentious with him. And now, well, he changed me. He reconciled me. I'm, I'm a sweet, godly Christian. That's what happened. Now, you might be thinking that makes me feel a little bit... Like, I don't know if I can make that, but I can say, say that about myself. Well, maybe, but maybe you'd say, he reconciled me. He made me a sweet enough Christian, a godly enough Christian. I'm, I, I, I'm, we're back in relationship because I'm really not picking a fight anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm getting along with him. Reconciliation changed me. That's what Jesus did. No. No. Now, let me give you a cartoonish illustration and then show you that. 
um, cartoonish, it's clear, there are things about it that might be offensive, but I want you to imagine an oafish husband. Guy, you know what, he, he breaks some commitments to his wife, and it wasn't like, oops, he was just being a jerk. He said he would do A, B, and C, and he didn't. And because of that, he made problems for his wife. He let her down. And it wasn't just that he let her down that she had to deal with. So he, he realizes, oh my gosh. And you can see him there with the roses and the chocolate and the card that he, he wrote saying um, the words jerk, and I know that, and I don't, you know, I'm sorry. When he's standing there doing all that, having changed his attitude, that man is not reconciled. When she says to him, I know, the couch is horrible, and I really want you to get a good night's sleep, and I love you, he is then reconciled. When her disposition changes. And this is how Paul uses the language of God reconciling consistently. When God reconciles, it doesn't mean he gets people to cooperate with him. Um, This is Romans 5.10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Simultaneous. We were enemies and we were reconciled. But but more pointedly, and this is 2 Corinthians 5, that was Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is talking about his ministry and how God is at work in the world. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Here's the ministry of reconciliation. Here's what's going on when God reconciles people. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's what it means to be reconciled. When God does not hold your trespasses against you, when God does not bring upon you the appropriate and the fitting, the sensible consequences of your hostility towards you're reconciled. And, and this is the extraordinary thing, that Jesus, who is the Lord of all, who is bringing order back into the universe, undoing how sin has wrecked and confused, oh, he does that with you individually. He reconciles you. He reestablishes from God's side a relationship of love and fidelity. And look at how Paul speaks of it here. If this meant Jesus reconciled you, he got you to be a sweet and godly Christian, what sort of change would you expect? Well, we see where we start. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. What's the transformation that happens here? You would expect the transformation, if it was about their attitude, instead of being alienated, they would be, what, intimate? They would be 
reconnected? Intimate would really be the language that would fit the opposite of alienated. They were hostile, so then they would become affectionate, or if that seems too touchy-feely, loyal. Instead of doing evil deeds, they become those doing what is good. But look at the words Paul uses to describe the outcome. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Those are not relationship words. These are temple words. And I want to remind you, the confusion and the controversy in Colossae is about whether Christians are good enough to be in God's presence. Could they enter the temple? Could they be near to him? Jesus has reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This language to present before you, this is the language of a priest. This is the, the way in the Old Testament we speak of the bringing of offerings to God. The worshiper presents before him whatever that offering is, be it an animal sacrifice or um, a uh, grain sacrifice or an incense offering. You've been reconciled to be holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now that could sound like morally right. I used to be obnoxious and contentious with God, and now I'm doing the things that I should do. But that's not the way the word holy is used in the Old Testament. Holy means set apart and belonging to God, removed from that which is common and given over to his particular presence. Of course, a sacrifice would have to be holy. Blameless and above reproach. Now, the that may strike you as, well, sort of repetitive. Blameless, not being able to be faulted, above reproach. And if you were to look at your New International Version, instead of blameless, you would see this word, unblemished. If you look in the dictionaries, this word, Greek word from the first century, it means unblemished, without physical defect, faultless. This is not the moral language of keeping God's right, law, correctly. This is the language describing that which could be brought into God's presence in the temple. You, you know what? No, you could not sacrifice uh, a bull that you didn't want to keep because it was obviously physically defective. No, that's not honoring God. It has to be unblemished. Now, above reproach, that really is moral language, one who is not characterized by being a scofflaw. And, and, and Paul is speaking to the Colossians exactly, exactly the way to sweep away the folly and the, 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 the grievousness of are you a good enough Christian? Because Paul, his climax is the language of the temple and he says, he has reconciled you and he has made you 
holy people who live and work in his presence. He describes them the way the scriptures describe the priests and the Levites. I need to think about this a moment for you to get the weight of this, what it means that you've been reconciled. You've been given this office. You have been given this place in the world with God. The priests and the Levites were the only ones who could work, as it were, on the interior part of the tabernacle and the temple. Others had to be outside. The priests were the only ones who could go in. High priests only once a year with blood to the Holy of Holies. But the priests could go into the sacred spaces. The Levites, their, their job, their occupation was to do the manual labor involved with the tabernacle and the temple, very much the way we often think of our deacons. And no one else could. They were set apart in Israel. They were holy. One of the lines about the Levites is that they were to be a wall around God's tabernacle to prevent the other people from intruding and God bursting out against them with wrath. You see, the Levites were accepted. They were on the inside as others weren't. They were set apart by birth as holy. You can do this. But you know what? There were Levites who couldn't take part in that work because they weren't without defect. They weren't unblemished. They were born with some congenital defect or they'd been accident and mutilated in some way and they could not do the service of the Levites. They were holy. They still, think of this, ate from the food that belonged to God's household and temple. But if they were holy, they weren't unblemished. And, and a Levite might well be, he's part of the clan, he's physically without defect, but if he's a man who despises God's law, will not work in the kind of fidelity and mercy required, he doesn't belong there either. And understand, you have been brought before Christ, presented as holy, without defect, and blameless. People can talk about whether, do you really think you have communion with God? Do you think that God not just wants to talk with someone like you, but that his presence is with you? Um, this is rude. I don't really like you that much. I kind of think you're a jerk. I'm pretty sure that God doesn't want to know you either. No. Oh, God knows about your hostility. God knows about your evil deeds. The Lord Jesus, Paul's language, Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, he reconciled us through his death. The Lord Jesus has reconciled you. 2 Corinthians 5, not counting your sins against you, but please see, reconciled doesn't mean just the end of the fight. I won't mention that again. No, Paul says that as as the Lord loves you, as he's taken you and rescued you from your sins, 
He brings you into his presence. Your life, your life is in the glory of the living God. That's what's going on with you. When we speak of the spirit present with us and dwelling with us, we're not just talking about energy or power. We're talking about where you are, who you are, is as close to God as anything on the earth ever has been. That is what he's done. And someone can say, are you a good enough Christian? And the right answer is, Jesus has placed me before him. Utterly acceptable, received. I have a share in the work of his glory. I don't know how good I am, but that's really kind of an old question. Because he has made me a priest, a Levite. His glory on the earth is found next to me and my brothers and sisters. This is what he's done. Now understand, when these people are pulling up things in the Old Testament saying, priest got to do this and holiness looks like this, that's God's word. How, how can that hostility and those evil deeds, um, how can that fit? Well, the Levites and the priests were under threat of death. What they did was an inherently dangerous business, not because God's a wild animal, but because sin is provoking. Sin draws out not just de death, but God's wrath. And you know, if there was some guy in Israel who thought, look, I want to be in on the tabernacle, I know I'm just a, a member of the tribe of Dan, but I'm going to go into the tabernacle. God would kill him, either by extraordinary, what we would call supernatural intervention, or through the regular processes of law in Israel. If a holy guy that is a member of the tribe of Levi, who he lost a hand in an in a accident, said, I'm going to go in and participate. I know that I'm blemished. I'm unhanded. I'm, I know that, but I'm going to. God would kill that man. A son of Levi, fine, strapping fellow in all ways, despising God's call to faithfulness and fidelity to the Ten Commandments. He walks in the tabernacle. He should expect to die. You, when someone asks the question, are you a good enough Christian? The fear in the back of your mind is, if I'm not, all I can expect is that God will kill me. But the Lord Jesus reconciled you. He didn't just change the paperwork. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. And we'll speak further about this phrase, body of flesh, because it's important as Paul 
responds to the lies that, that, that are harming the Colossians, but to see it. You would rightly be terrified to enter, enter the tabernacle for all sorts of reasons, but Jesus has reconciled you by his death. There is not a death for you. He has taken it. And so you are accepted. You belong there. And no one can talk about where you're born from or what you're like or what you do and disqualify you. And it's not just, not just that you're forgiven, that you can forget about being disqualified. Please, do you recognize this? You have been ushered in to the holy presence of God. You dwell, you dwell, life to life. He is, is living in overwhelming, tremendous glory and richness. And that is where you live. Your common business, like a Levite whose job it was to pick this up and move it over there, you work with solid gold objects all day. That is who you are, made in his image and reconciled to him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. See, this is the wonderful if that you know. And that, that, that you treasure. If I didn't have Jesus, I would only get what I deserve. If, if I hadn't come to faith in Christ, I would only be on my way to hell. Those, those are serious ifs. And they're frightening. And Jesus is a savior for that. You're, you're perfectly safe if you don't jump back in the water. I will tell you, that woman had no idea, no thought of jumping back in the water. She needed reassurance, but she didn't need anybody to say, hey, stay away from the edge. Because she knew the terror, and she knew that she'd been rescued. She's taking it in. And Paul's word here is a reassurance. If indeed you continue in the faith, the gospel that you heard. Because what's being said to the Colossians, and this is said to you in various ways, yeah, yeah, being Christian is a good thing, but it won't work unless you add this. It won't work unless you add this. That's a great idea. Yes, Christianity is very important. Do you know how to work that machine? Can, can, can you... Put together in yourself the kind of behavior and dispositions that are really Christian. There are all sorts of versions of this, and, and we'll take them up as we go into the letter. But just it's a very simple thing. Paul's point is you are reconciled if you believe the gospel that you heard before. And you go on being reconciled. You stand in God's presence because you trust in this one who came to seek and save the lost. 
this is frightening to me. My sins frighten me. Of course they do. This is the Lord Jesus. Remember what he's done. Remember what he's done for you. This will make you stable. This will make you steadfast. You, 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 yeah. Look at the sharks. Look at the boat. Look at the shark. Look at the boat. That boat will convince you. Now, you'll be, saw, you'll be safe a long time before you stop having your heart beating. But you don't need to do something else. It's the gospel. And it's true. Being loved by the Lord, seeing his ways in his kingdom, oh, it changes you. You become like him. And people might well, even if they don't leave that well, mistake you for being a good enough Christian. But you don't have to accomplish anything. You don't have to improve yourself one bit. You trust in Christ. You stand on the deck of the boat and you let the water run off you and you look at the sharks and you look at the deck of the boat and you say, I'm safe. I better be safe. The sharks scare me. Am I safe? You don't do anything except become more deeply appreciative of that boat and of your safety. Now, there is, in Paul's words here, um, a warning, a redirect, a clear, hey, I know what's going on there. If you continue in the faith, that is, the teaching you've received about Christ for sinners and the kingdom, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul is going to go on and very straightforwardly, piece by piece, say to them, I know you're hearing this bunk. I know it's bunk with Bible in it. I know it's bunk that says to you, we have great things for you. Don't jump back in the water. Hold on to the safety, the Christ that you've been given. Um, there's nothing to add. There's a lot more to enjoy. But you, you have trusted in Christ. And that brings you safe and sound into the presence of God. All reason of terror removed because Jesus is the one who has you there. Pray with me. Father, please, please teach us to enjoy, take confidence in our Savior and pray in his name. Amen. Um, please stand up and let us sing him. Number 679, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.